Well, good day, Fellowship family. It is raining outside there, lads. We need this rain. So thanks for braving it. Many of you look like you're slicking your hair back, but you basically parked in the remote parking today. So glad you're here as we continue this series in uh, the book of Titus. And really, when we're look, talking about this book, we're talking about influence, because that's exactly what Paul was doing, is transferring his influence, his leadership, from himself to another named Titus, who was on the island of Crete. And uh, they had heard the gospel probably on the day of Pentecost, because in the book of Acts, it says there were Cretans who were in Jerusalem, and they heard the mighty works of God proclaimed. And so they took it back to their area, and Paul traveled through that area on uh, his journey to Rome, where he was awaiting his trial. And uh, Titus was there to set up the church. So it's all about influence, and we've taken that, there, that there's a timeless principle in this for us, that it wasn't just Paul transferring it to Titus, it's Paul transferring it to us. And what excites me about being here today is I just look at this room that God has put people in and filled this room with people, and I just want to remind you that you are significant in the hand of God. Every one of you has value. Every one of you matters. Every one of you is priceless and eternal. That just excites me that I get to be before eternal people today, and I get to open up God's eternal word, and I get to talk, and I think about what if. What if we actually believed God, took him at his word, and lived for him? In just a few minutes, if I stop preaching, (laughs) it's long today, so hang with me, okay? When I quit preaching today, God is going to transfer you. And I wish I could just put little beacons on you, not to be creepy, but just to put you in places where I could never go, but you are. With people I could never talk to, but you are already in relationship with them. And I just think about the power of this in your life and through your life into someone else. That's what this message is all about. And so I'd like you just to clear away anything that would distract you, any worry that's on your mind right now. And as we go before God's word, I want you to lean in. This is really good stuff. This is often misunderstood stuff, but this is really good stuff for us. And I want you to focus. God, what would you have me do as a result of being here today? I think that's why you're here. I think that's why you got up on a rainy Sunday morning and you came into God's house and you came with God's people because you really do want to grow. You want to, you want to be led by God in your life. So let's go before God and pray and open our hearts to him. Father, thank you for each person you brought to this place. Whether or not they have put their trust in you, it's an honor to have priceless eternal people in this place. And now we look to your word. Would your Holy Spirit find freedom in our lives to move us, to encourage and comfort us, but also to convict us that there are some issues in our lives you need to deal with and you need to restore and transform. Restore and transform my words and my heart, just as you're transforming everyone in this room. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. So as we've been looking at this word of influence, the outline of the book of Titus is really about being and leading by grace in the church, in your family, and in the world. And we come to this passage in Titus chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open up to Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 2, and we're going to read it. And as we read it, there are going to be words and there are going to be statements that are offensive to our world in 2018. 
and in, in which we need to really understand, not just their usage here in the book of Titus, but in the whole teaching, the whole counsel of God in the scriptures. Now, I only have a few minutes this morning, so I'm not going to have the opportunity to go into the full picture of everything, but I want to give you a taste, a taste of the heart of God as we read this, that I want you to hang on. Many times when you read the word of God or when you hear a passage quoted out of context, it's real easy for you to go, don't understand that, I'm out. (laughs) That's easy to do that. And I even struggle with, there's an area which I don't want God to mess with in my life. It's an area that I want to live life the way I want to live. And I would love to preach on the areas that are just perfect in my life, that are looking really good, and ignore the areas that are not great. But I don't have that right. I don't. As a follower of Jesus, I follow Jesus, right? Which means he's my authority. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And so we need to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to check out of some of those things that, uh, that immediately make us check out and check into why. Why does God's word say this? That's what I want to encourage you to do. So hang with me. Everybody put on your seatbelt. Are you ready? Let's read it. It says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's really good. I want to be a man who models exactly what this is, a godly leader growing in grace. But look what it says here. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so to train the young woman to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, hang with me, hang with me, okay? Kind and submissive to their own husbands. Hang with me, ladies, okay? That the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants. Some of our, your, your uh, versions say slaves. What does this mean? We're going to try to understand that. But they're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And look at this. This gives light to everything he just said. Look at this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people, young and old, slaves and free training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Let me start on verse 11, because I think this gives light to everything, and then we can work backwards to where it talks about older to younger and everything else that it says. The first thing that we need to realize is that a godly leader is saved by grace. Look at verse 11 there. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
The gospel, because it reflects the heart of God, the good news about Jesus Christ, is that salvation can be for all people. It's not just for a few. It's not a upper-middle-class white uh, religion. It is for all people. It's not just, even in the Roman Empire, it was not just for those who had wealth and prosperity. Matter of fact, the gospel took its most traction in the poor, in the disadvantaged, in the marginalized. You even see here that the even slaves started believing the gospel because they believed that God loved them and valued them and gave them dignity and significance, and they put their trust in Jesus, their Savior. And so the grace of God has appeared to all people, and it's appeared to bring salvation. So if you're going to lead for God, then you ultimately need to be saved by grace. And many times this is just passed over and it's taken, of course, that's what it means. But really, what does it mean to be saved by grace? It literally means that you cannot save yourself. And if you are performance-driven when it comes to God, you can never do enough good things. You can never be enough to earn his love or his favor. That's why we need grace, because grace is unearned, undeserved favor from God. It moves us to move from sin into salvation, from, from a death to life, from wickedness to righteousness, all because of what Christ has done for us. And so a godly leader is close to grace. They're, they're able to say, I have a need to be saved. They understand their own sin. Look at how Paul really develops this in verse 14. He talks about Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is Paul kind of going slow. He's not just glossing over the gospel. He's going deep and he's saying, look, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth and he lived a perfect life. He lived a life you and I could not live. And he died on a cross because he redeemed us from all lawlessness through his death and resurrection on the cross. And then he's, he's building in us a new identity, a people who are his own possession, and then zealous for good works. We're going to talk about what that phrase, zealous for good works, looks like next week. So come back next week, okay? No charge. Come back next week. This just gets better is what we're trying to say here. And, and we're going to be, learn that good works do not save you. The American belief is that I do my part, God does his part. God meets me halfway when I'm good enough. And how good is good enough? The measure that I read in the scripture is perfection. And some of us are better than others. And I can choose which area I'm better than you in because I do really well in that. But none of us are perfect. And so we all need the grace of God in our lives. We all, if it's going to be, it's not up to me. It's up to what God is going to do in my life. So grace understands that I need Jesus to do something for me that I can't do for myself. Not only does someone realize that for them personally, they realize that that's the good news for the world. It's not your own way to God. It's God's way. And it's the one way through Jesus Christ. And so a follower of Jesus believes and leads in a way that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Some of you, you're here, that's the first time you kind of heard it couched that way. You kind of thought, 
If I'm good enough, God owes it to me to save me. If I do these good things at my death, God will weigh the bad things and the good things. As long as the good things outweigh the bad things I'm in. Again, how good do you have to be? The scriptures are perfect. And that's why we're called into perfection. And none of us can do it, so all of us need Christ. Guess what? The grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Everyone matters to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If that makes sense to you right now and you haven't made that transfer of trust, do that right now. Just say, God, I get it. I got it. It's not up to me. It's up to what you've done. It's not me trying. It's in me trusting what you've already done. I do that. I trust in you. I turn from my sin. And I trust in you to make me the man or the woman you want me to be. However that's going to look, I'm willing to trust you with that. And if that's you, if you by faith turned and trusted, guess what? You're part of the family of God. You're into this whole group called the church now. And you're part of what God is doing in the church to draw all people to salvation in Christ. Welcome to the family. It's good that you're here. Now, I will tell you, none of us are here because we've had fantastic weeks of performance. We're all here because we need Jesus, right? The ground is level at the cross. It's not what we're doing. It's what he's done. It's not what I do for him. It's what he's doing in me. That's the concept of being a follower and a leader of Jesus. So an element of a godly leader is that they're saved by grace. Secondly, they're also being trained by grace. And Paul really has a strategy here. He said, ultimately, the gospel of grace moves from one life to another. It's done relationally. And discipleship is a relational thing. It's not just one person speaking to a thousand people on a Sunday morning. It's life on life. And I can preach truth. And I pray every time I preach truth that the Holy Spirit will grab a hold of it. And he will change. And he will mold. And he will transform your hearts. I pray that every week. But ultimately, how to live is a relational thing. And Paul's going to say, if you're older, if you're an older dude or an older woman, you need to be building into the younger group. Now, this means something to us because our average age here at Fellowship Bible Church is 28. You know what that means? I'm an old dude here. I'm an old dude. See, the the heavenly halo is right there. I'm one of the older dudes here. So if I'm going to be here, And I'm going to have a fulfilling, joyful ministry. It's not going to be about my comfort. It's going to be about my contribution into the lives of younger people. And if you're younger, we want you to find this as a place where you can look to someone who's just a little bit older than you, who can help you in your following Christ. If some of you just trusted Christ right now, you need someone to come alongside you and and to show you, this is how I follow Jesus. Some of you have just been diagnosed with cancer or another medical issue that you can't figure out. You're going to need to see someone else just a little bit older, more experienced in your life, who's dealt with that and who's held on to the hand of Jesus Because our world basically says there's no point in in suffering. There's no point to pain. And we've seen in the scripture that God uses everything. He will not be prevented from anything. And so we need to be people who are willing to learn. And so you're going to see this pattern. Older build into younger. Younger grow up. 
grow up with godly understanding. Let's take a look at those two principles. I'm going to go a little deeper in this passage. So if you're older, you're going to be growing old in godly experience. Look at what Paul calls older men and older women to do. He says that older men should be sober-minded. In other words, they are not drunk on themselves. And they don't view themselves more highly than they ought. And as you grow older, because I'm growing older, (laughs) I'll tell you the temptation. So I don't care what anyone thinks. In my day, it used to be like that. Look at what's happening today with the world. It's really easy to be annoyed by what's happening in the younger generation today. Olders, especially men, dudes, angry men in the room, in the house. (laughs) Be sober-minded. Don't view yourself as over everyone else, as having the right to speak my mind. I mean, we've all been around that Thanksgiving table, and Grandpa just goes viral. I mean, he's just, what in the world? And Dad just goes, oh, that's Grandpa. Don't be that dude. Don't be that dude. Create an environment where where young people lean into you. Here's, Here's what I've noticed. So you go through adolescence. And the things your parents aren't telling you, they don't mean anything to you anymore. You aren't listening to them. But one person you do respect is a godly grandfather or a godly grandmother. They've just been sharpened by life. They always welcome you. They love you and accept you. Lean into them. And grandparents, aunts and uncles, create an environment where your nieces and nephews and your grandchildren lean into you where they're loved and accepted and affirmed. You have a voice. Don't go on the sidelines of life. What Paul is really calling us, whether male or female, man or woman, is to, is to not move towards comfort. And everything in our culture is, you've earned it. Relax. Here's a golf course. Here's a house next to the golf course. We call that retirement. And we can buy that, we can buy that, that true life, true pleasure is just being around people who are like us. We call them retirement communities. And those really are not, those are areas that are built for comfort, not for you being in contribution. What's beautiful about what I get to see every week is we have multiple generations represented in this room. We don't have just the young. We have the young and the older in here, and we're all better together. We could definitely just say, hey, we only want 28 and younger because that's the heart of America. No, no, no. We, we, there's something for us to learn. And if you're older, continue to grow old in godly experience. The younger people need experience, not just ideology, not just truth, but the truth wrapped in grace and experience. Okay, so now it says, look at this. It says... Be dignified. Do you know what dignified means? And I'm going to go faster than the past. Otherwise, we'll be here till three in the afternoon. But dignified literally means I give dignity to people. It doesn't mean I'm so dignified. Look at how I handle myself. No, it's, it's more I give dignity to you. I give dignity to a child as I give a dignity to an adolescent, dignity to a young adult, dignity to my children, Dignity to my wife. I give dignity. I give value. People are significant to me. And then it says, self-controlled. 
sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. What that literally means is that you're solid, that you're not being swayed anymore. You know what you know, you believe what you believe, and you're settled in that. You're not getting tossed and turned so that, catch this, when we go through life that's like this, we go and we grab on to someone who's older, and we, we find strength, we find support in them. See what Paul's doing? Older people, it's not about comfort. Do you remember what the whole church in Crete, what the Cretans were called by the philosopher from Crete? He called them always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How about that for a flag? You know, those are your mottos. And Paul's saying, no, followers of Jesus are not like that. They're dignified people. They give dignity to others. They're sober-minded. And then look what it says to the older woman. It says, reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine, teaching what is good. And again, under that context where there was an incredible amount of drunkenness, and by the way, that's very much like our culture today. Alcohol is still the top drug of choice, and a lot of us are moved and motivated and controlled by it. So we're called to be self-controlled, and it's called to be something under control in our lives. But the image I get when Paul is writing this of who not to be as an older woman is, you ever see Prince's Bride? Remember when Princess Buttercup's having that dream of marrying Prince Humperdinck and she's presented out there and that old lady stands up and goes, boo, boo, okay? That's who you don't want to be as an older woman. (laughs) What it's saying is just like grandpa can speak his mind at the Thanksgiving table, so can grandma, okay? Don't be that person. Parents, Are you creating an environment where your kids will lean into you, where where your kids, even through adolescence, are accepted and loved, even though they're experimenting with different thoughts that are out of your... Do we just pound on our kids so that they no longer want to talk to us? Or do we create an environment where there can be godly influence? We talk about it a lot in our family ministry here. But when your kids are young... You're a caregiver. You're changing diapers. You're saying it's 7.30 bedtime. You're getting ready. Did you do your homework? And you're doing that, and you move. When your kids get into grade school and then into middle school, you're more of a coach. And you sit on the sidelines. You're no longer, hopefully, that helicopter parent who shows up and completes the science fair, you know? They got the whole solar system because you designed it. Rather than setting down and letting your kid, letting your kid do it, even if it's not great. We're we're people who are coaches. But then when your kids get out of the house, guess what you become? A consultant. If you stay coach, (laughs) it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. I remember my dad was coaching me when I really wanted him to be a consultant. And when I started out preaching, he would say, send me your preaching tapes. So I would send him my preaching tapes. And he would call me up when he got them. He goes, hey, um, you need to do this, 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 and this, and this when you preach. I said, okay. And, and then when you did this, you're still talking to youth people and you're talking to adults. You need to, you need to clean this up. And I go, okay, thanks. And I quit sending him tapes after that. <laughs> and he called me, he goes, you just preached. You didn't send me the tape. I said, dad, I have enough people criticizing my preaching. I don't need the home front to, to do it. <laughs> and it's interesting because he hung up the phone after, and, and my mom said they broke down in tears because he had no idea that instead of being a consultant, he was a coach. He was still coaching me when I was an adult. Some of us parents need to step back from coaching. 
And we need to tell our kids, you're doing great. I'm proud of you. You're really good at this. And when we can tell them that and, and build that, uh, that picture of love and acceptance, then guess what our kids will have? They'll trust us when they're going through a difficult time. When they crash, they'll come, hopefully, and go, Dad, this happened. I don't know what to do. And when we're consultants, we can go, well, you could do that. You could do that, too. Here's what I might do, but it's up to you. And you give them that, those decisions to make on their own, but you can speak wisdom into it. We're called to grow old in godly experience. Now, we're going to move. If you're younger then, then we're called to grow up in godly understanding. Now, Paul is going to address these issues because they're not easy. They're difficult. If Paul is going to call a younger woman to submit to her husband, he's going to say, who teaches her how to do that? I can say it, but it's going to be so much easier for an older woman to come alongside a younger woman and say, this is how you submit to your husband. Now, understand that some of you are going, wait, submit to my husband? No way. But I will tell you this. This is how God has set it up. And there's an element to this to where it talks about women working at home and submitting to their husbands that make us feel more ancient and out of date and irrelevant to our world today. But there are timeless principles in here that we need to understand. And here's the picture. Inside of marriage, God calls the husband to be a servant leader. And by that, he's the first one to love her. He's the first one to forgive her. He's the first one to initiate even a spiritual direction. And in many cases, a husband does not do this. A husband in our world, basically, many times, will will go and just say, how do you want to do it? Rather than, how should we do it? And we become passive in this. But God has called the husband to reflect the love of Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. So if you're going to be a husband, you have just signed up not to get all the benefits of marriage and the benefits of a woman, but you're called to serve and to give yourself up because you model the love of Jesus for her. Now, if a husband is doing that, it makes it easier for a woman to submit to his leadership and by submit, give him permission to lead like that to lead as a servant leader. But being broken people, we're going to need some help. That's why Paul says, if submission is still a thing God calls a wife to do in marriage, we're going to need older, experienced women who, when their husbands messed up and were goofs and were selfish, this is how I handled that. And Paul is saying, that's where we get experience. So these older people who are experienced, building into a younger group who are growing up, in godly understanding, this is the pattern that God has done and has given us. Now, we're going to come back to this, but before we move on, I think it's worth us talking about this whole concept of slavery in the scriptures. Because it's not just this passage that talks about slavery. And as we look at the whole picture, the church over time, especially in the American experience, has used slavery to exploit people, devalue them, and treat them as property. This is not the heart of God, and it's not the heart of the gospel. And the American church needs to repent to our African-American brothers and sisters for this. Because in churches, specifically in the South, they have used this passage to legitimize and promote slavery and therefore resisting emancipation and liberation in the eyes of God. 
the scriptures do talk about slavery, but not in an American context, more in a Roman context in the New Testament, where in Rome itself, one out of every three people were slaves. In the Roman Empire, one in five people were slaves. They were not slaves because of their race, much like the American experience. They were slaves for a variety of reasons. The most common was debt. If you owed someone and could not pay them back, the law would put you under them as their bond servant until you paid them back. And if that was the case, Paul said this, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, that there is no room for enslavers. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, among the long list of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God, enslavers is right there. So slavery is not at the heart of God. But it was a very big part in that culture. And in that culture, he told slaves who were coming to Christ, right now, if you could get your freedom, by all means, become liberated. But if you live under that and you owe someone and you're working for them, be faithful. One slave named Onesimus, who ran away from his slave owner, Philemon, which is the book right after Titus, It's Paul writing and saying, hey, Philemon, I wrote this. Look at this situation. He ran away and he ran away to me and he came to Christ. I'm bringing him back to you and I'm sending him back to pay back any any debt he may owe you, but I'm paying for it. I want you to set him free. So you see the heart of God for this, but it doesn't explain every question to why this is happening. It gives us a picture that ultimately this New Testament shows us that there's no distinction in the eyes of God between Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, or free. All are one in Christ. And so the gospel liberates us all. The gospel liberates and sets all of us free. And we are to model that freedom that only Christ can give us. Let's come back to the larger principle here, though. The larger principle is that through the eyes of God, he wants, if you are older, to be building into the younger. And if you are younger, to be seeking and finding. And when you find, listen and lean in to an older person in the faith who can help you grow. So not only are they being saved by the gospel or by grace and trained by grace, they're they're also being built up by grace. But before I move on, let me just show you this picture. How many of you have watched American Pickers? Okay. All right. I love this. This is one of their greatest finds in that whole TV series. Uh, It's where they came across this 1954 Nash Healy, and it was worth, uh, I think they got it for like $20,000, and they sold it for $60,000. So it was a big find for them. But this picture kind of gives a whole picture of what I'm talking about. You got an older dude there, who owns the car. And you got the younger dude who's looking for the treasure in the car. And I can only imagine the conversation. I absolutely love stuff like this because when I find something in an older man that is a wisdom, that's a treasure in me, uh, for me, I just want to listen. Tell me about that. Tell me how you did this. And think about how he drove that car, how he took care of that car, what he did with that car. All those are stories. That's what happens when our lives are sharpened from younger to older. Here's what I want you to do. If you're a younger, 
Look for someone who's just a little bit older than you, who's showing you a picture of what it's like to follow Jesus just a little bit older than you. Learn from them. Learn from their mistakes. If you're an older dude, don't just show your positives. Show your negatives. Show your failures so that that guy doesn't repeat your failure. If you're an older woman and you learned a ton on what living with your husband looks like, and you finally have learned to love him. Pass that on to a younger person who goes, man, what did I just do? This guy is the most selfish individual I've ever met. And I just know this. Hi, I'm Joe. And I had no idea how selfish I was until I got married. I had no idea. And then I didn't know how selfish we were until we had kids. You don't know how selfish you are until you're in the ring. And you're loving someone who's broken, and you also see your own brokenness. We need together. We need to be together. Now, we'll come back to this, and we'll close with this. But this is the third thing. Not only are they being trained by grace, but they're being built up by grace for God's glory. Look at what Titus 2, verse 13 says. Is that right now we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a godly leader is living between two great appearances, is what I call it. If you look at the revelation of God, how God has shown himself to us, how God has always been and he always will be, we've been created, and we've been created at a time that's in between two great appearances. The first one is the coming of Jesus. The scriptures, as Paul said, it says that the grace of God appeared, and it brings salvation for all people, people who are priceless, eternal people. And then he says, we're waiting. We're waiting for something. And we're waiting through the life and death of Christ, that when Christ appeared and brought this salvation, he gives us an eternal hope, which God, who does not lie, has promised even before the ages began. But we look forward to what Paul says, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's when Christ will return. And Christ will fully and finally confront evil. He will judge all people from every nation in justice and righteousness. And there will be everyone, everyone when he returns, will say every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those who know him, we will go, yes, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who don't will go, oh, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we wait. We wait for the second appearing. But we don't wait passively. We don't get our ticket out of hell card and go to sleep. We're here to show the life of Jesus, the eternal, to bring the eternal life of Jesus to everyone because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We look for it. We live for it. The same grace that saves us, keeps us, and trains us, and builds us in hope, in our love, and in our identity. And so now this time of waiting for our blessed hope We are people who live. We live with this glorious, blessed hope in our minds. So here's three values I want to leave you with. As if you're an older, 
Here's the three values I want you to transfer to the youngers. Number one, we need to be people who are always expecting hope, who are always giving the perspective of hope. Folks, this life is not it. It's not it. It can't be it. It's got to be heaven is my it. Eternal life with Jesus forever and ever is it. So if that's my it, then I can handle a lot of the garbage here on earth. I can handle disappointment. I can handle suffering. I can handle rejection. Because this is not it. Our world says, you're born, you die. Make the best. Because when you're gone, you're gone. Que sera, sera. (laughs) And so we're called then to live with this hope. Secondly, another great thing to pass on is a deepening love. I celebrated 26 years of marriage to my wife this week, and I always sing the song on our anniversary date. I love you more today than yesterday. Okay, if you don't know that song, it's because of this. I'm an old dude, right? But it continues, but not as much as tomorrow. And I want to love my wife more tomorrow. I want to love Jesus more tomorrow than I even do today. And if you're older, there needs to be a deep, rich love for Jesus. That's not just taught, but caught by everyone who spends time with you. Mom, dad, uncle, aunt, grandma, grandpa. Do your children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews see a deepening love for Jesus? That's going to draw them in. We are all looking to be known, fully known, and loved anyway. And only Jesus does that. So we're called into that deepening love. And finally, we're called into a developing identity. Here it says that Jesus has not only redeemed us, but he set us free from all lawlessness to make us a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. I told you, come back next week. We'll learn about what it looks like to be zealous for good works. But here, just look at this own identity. Your identity is not your own. And in the American culture, we prize and we worship our identity and we protect our, our own identity. We, we, um, we post on Facebook an identity. We keep Instagram going with an identity. But we ultimately need to realize we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's what I want to leave you with. You're older. Look around you. Look around you for someone who may be getting swayed, someone who may be getting moved by something that's ruining them or destroying them, and you could step in. Look for your grandchildren or your own children and build into them. Transfer this under the environment of hope and love, giving them your identity in Christ, not your identity as a successful, powerful person. The gospel always steps down. Look around you. And if you're younger, look for someone just a little bit older than you who can show you a picture of God's grace and that you can get together. Men and women, live out the gospel of grace. Do it relationally. Whether whether it's in the first century or whether it's in the 21st century, this same Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for your direction. Even amongst a world that has rejected this and has turned away and has rewritten what they believe is truth. May we be people who humble ourselves before you. We may not understand everything about this, but Holy Spirit, would you work in our minds to trust you with the next decision, with the next movement. I look in this room, Lord, and we just trust everyone to you, younger and older. May we all be in relationships that make Jesus greater, that step down from ourselves to make Jesus and bring him glory on earth as he is in heaven. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.